Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And we'll pause there for now. The Gospel of Luke is the only one of the four Gospels to give us an introduction uh, to the book where he identifies what he's doing and, and what his purposes are. Uh, the author is not named. You've got the title up at the top of the page where it says the gospel according to Luke. But Luke never names himself in the scriptures. In fact, none of the gospel writers ever put their names to the books. But uh, church tradition unanimously attributes it to Luke. Like there's no weird strain of church history where they said it was written by Barnabas or something like that. Uh, and we also know that uh, since the book of Acts is tied to the book of Luke, so the introductions both address Theophilus. They both talk about uh, telling the complete story of the gospel. So he wrote Luke, whoever it was, wrote Luke, and he wrote Acts. When you get to the middle of the book of Acts, there's a point where the writer stops saying, he did, he did, he did, and starts saying, we did, we did, we did. And that's the point of the story where Luke was picked up. So that's why we assume from the internal evidence that it was written by Luke. Uh, but also there's plenty of church tradition. Uh, there's no really other option. So this was written by a man named Luke. He's only mentioned a couple times by name in the Bible. Colossians 4.14 uh, Paul writes, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. So from the scripture, we can learn a couple things about Luke. He was a traveling companion of Paul. He was not a Jew because in Colossians chapter 4, verse 11, he gives a list of those who are with him of the circumcision, meaning the Jews. And then he lists everybody else. So those who are not of the circumcision, which includes Luke. We know that he was a physician. That may have been why he traveled with Paul. We know that Paul had frequent ailments and trouble with his eyes. Maybe that's why he went with him. We know from what we just read here, he was not an eyewitness of the things of Christ. So he wasn't traveling with Jesus during the time of, of Christ. But he was familiar enough with the story, as we saw, that he wrote it down. And we also know that he was beloved and respected in the church. He's the beloved physician. Just everybody likes Luke which is cool. And in 2 Timothy, when Paul is abandoned it's, and it's just him in the dungeon awaiting his final trial, he says, only Luke is with me. Luke was the one that stuck it out and stayed with Paul. So that's who Luke is. He also wrote the book of Acts, as I said. Those two books together represent 28% of the New Testament. That's longer than all of Paul's epistles combined, the book of Luke and the book of Acts. So we have a lot of the things that Luke wrote. So we might ask ourselves, when was this written? Because that, that's important. If it was written a couple hundred years after Jesus had died and risen, then the account becomes a little less reliable. But uh, we know that the book of Acts ends weirdly. It ends with Paul in prison, right? It's kind of a weird way to end the book. It's like, and then Paul got to Rome, he was imprisoned, and the end. And people will say, well, why would Luke end it that way? Because that's all that had happened so far. Luke, Paul was still in prison when Luke finished it. Now, we know that Paul was beheaded towards the end of the 60s AD, like around 67, 68 AD. So the book of Acts would have had to have been finished before that. So call that the mid-60s AD. And since Luke was written first, Acts chapter 1 refers to this as the first account, you can peg this somewhere around the early 60s AD. Why does that matter? That's only like 30 years after Jesus died. That's pretty cool. That's right 
next to that time period. And it also verifies what he says that there were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. Luke was able to interview people. Because he didn't see Jesus, but he was able to go and talk to them because they were still living. That's very, very important for the confirmation of this. And he even says here that in verse 1, there are many who had undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that had happened to Jesus. So apparently Luke wasn't the only one writing this stuff down. Uh, there were many of them. And uh, Matthew and Mark being the obvious ones. John would have written much later. Um, but apparently there were other people doing this too. Uh, the church for the first couple decades valued what they called the living voice. You can read this up in, in scripture, uh, I'm sorry, in, in church history, uh, that when the apostles began to die out, they began to worry because what's going to happen to the living voice, meaning the people who are alive that saw what happened. And uh, this was one of the reasons that they began to write these things down because they're like, we've got to get this written. We've got to get it on paper so that no one can come and twist it or, or try and change, the, change what actually happened. And Luke says that he investigated, right? He followed all these things closely, right? For some time past, that word can also be uh, from the very beginning. Luke investigated all this. And you can assume that he was perusing the various accounts, some of which would have been inspired, some of which would have not been inspired. But he compiles all of them together. What he's saying here is, I'm going to take everything that everybody's written, and I'm going to make like a comprehensive gospel from start to finish. That's what Luke's, uh, Luke's goal was. This also explains why Luke has so much in common with Matthew and Mark. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what are called the synoptic gospels. They're very similar to each other. And that makes sense with Luke because he says, I was evaluating what everybody else had written and kind of bringing the best of it together and making one, uh, one new gospel. So uh, that's why 52% of Luke can be found in Matthew and Mark. But then 48% of it is unique. So compared to Mark, which almost all of it can be found in Matthew and Luke, Luke uh, added a lot of special details, particularly at the beginning of this book, which we're going to see today. Uh, Luke is also a little different because he, he wrote in a style that was more elevated than the rest of the New Testament, right? The writers of the New Testament were fishermen, right? They were carpenters. These were not learned men. And so they wrote in a very common, easy-to-understand style. Even Paul, who was a great thinker, wrote in, in a very common style, what we called Koine Greek, which means common Greek. Luke writes in a more sophisticated style, closer to classical Greek. In fact, that first sentence there, verses 1 through 4, is actually one sentence in Greek. And it's, you know, it's like reading Plato or Homer. It's very sophisticated. Think of like if it was in English, like if that was Shakespearean English. It's much closer to that in the way that he writes. And that ties into his purpose here because he writes to who? He says, most excellent Theophilus. This was a greeting that you would give a Roman official. You know, most excellent. It's kind of like your highness or uh, your majesty. But uh, he says, most excellent Theophilus. I put this together for you. So this isn't some slipshod thing that uh, this was just for, for the guys at the church, for the people that were also uneducated. But this is written for a much uh, broader audience. Um, we don't know who Theophilus was. This could have been Luke's patron, the one that sponsored him to write the book. This could have been Luke's owner. Uh, slavery was very common back then. And most physicians, in order to pay for their physician's training, they would sell themselves into slavery in order to pay for the debt. So th that could have been him. We don't know. But what is really cool is the name Theophilus means lover of God. So theos, like theos, means God. Phyllis is like Philadelphia, right? Brotherly love. Theophilus. Lover of God. And I like that because that could apply to anybody. You know, there, it's very possible that Theophilus was a real person. But it, you could read this like, I've, I've put together an orderly account for you 
most excellent lover of God. That could apply to you. That could apply to me. And he says he wanted, in verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. He wanted to confirm the truth of the gospel. Things you have been taught. The word for taught there in Greek is katecheo. It's where we get our word catechism from. So it's like you've been instructed, you've been taught about the things of God. I'm writing this historical account to confirm it for you so that you will know that these aren't just stories that were made up, but I've gone back, I've talked to the sources, I've looked at everything that's been written, and I've put it together. It's there to build your faith. This is important in an age where people are trying to say, it doesn't matter if the Bible's true as long as it's meaningful to you. There's a guy named Leon Morris, and he has a quote. He said, the main impact of this prologue is that Christianity is true and is capable of confirmation by appeal to what had happened. When Luke wanted to build the faith of the people, he didn't make up stories. He went and talked to those who were there. Christianity is based on the history and fact of what happened in the days of Jesus, not myths, not legends. You read myths and legends. I mean, you read the Metamorphoses from Ovid, or you read any of the other Greek stories, or the, you know, the Norse myths of Odin and Thor and Loki. Like, it doesn't read like scripture. You know, they're going to open up with once upon a time. In verse 5, he's going to open up with in the days of Herod, right? This was a real guy in a real place, real people doing real things. And this is why he wrote it, to confirm the certainty of what we've been taught as Christians. So I pray that that's exactly what would happen as we go through this. That as we study the things of Jesus, you will fall in love with Jesus again. You'll be confirmed in your belief in him. We're, we're the disciples of Christ. That's really at the, at the very base. That's what we are. We're disciples of Jesus Christ. Everything we do, everything we believe is based on who he is and what he's done. So we need to learn it together. Everybody's got weird ideas about Jesus. Have you noticed? Like everybody wants a piece of Jesus. Like It's like people that are doing things that are so opposed to everything Jesus taught, but they still want him on their side. Like, Jesus wouldn't approve of you. He approves of what we do. But it's like, how about we let the word speak for itself? We let Jesus speak for himself. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to start the book of Luke and study the whole thing through. So let's start now at verse 5. That's kind of his introduction. And now we move into verse 5. He says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abiah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And we'll pause there now. So these first verses introduce us to two very old, very godly people. Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth. Both of them were descendants of Aaron. Remember, Aaron was the, the brother of Moses who was the first priest. So in order to be a priest, you had to be a descendant of Aaron. And both of them were. So Zechariah, while he would not have, we, we can kind of have this picture that the priest stayed in the temple all the time. Uh, the chief priest, the high priest would, but Zechariah was one of the division of Abia, which meant he had periodic duties in the temple. If you read in 1 Chronicles chapter 24, it's one of the more dry passages of scripture, but it's when they're organizing the priests and they were divided into 24 divisions, one of which was the division of Abia. 
So 1 Chronicles 24.10 describes that. And this is, this is what he did. It's like you, you would serve in shifts, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more. Scripture points out the blameless character of these two people. You know, we're, we're gonna, we go through this, we're going to read about Romans, we're going to read about the Jews and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the corruption and the lawlessness that was throughout the land of Israel. But these two were faithful to the Lord. God always has a remnant, and it's to the remnant that the Lord always comes. So it says, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty. Okay, so there were about 18 to 20,000 priests in the land. They couldn't all serve at the same time. So what would happen is your division would serve one week twice a year. So there'd be two weeks throughout the year that you would come into the temple and you would serve, you would do the offerings, you would do the sacrifices, you would, I would imagine, clean up and take care of any problems that came up, but they did it in turns. And then the duties in the temple would be distributed by lot. So they would cast lots. What they would do is they would put a bag of rocks into a bag or a bowl or something, and they would paint one of them white, and they would, uh, or they would put your name on each one, and they would shake it until one of them popped out. Whichever one popped out, that was who got that duty. So who's going to be sweeping today? Who's going to be polishing today? Who's going to be preparing the showbread today? And who's going to be burning incense today? And the reason they did it that way is because there was a, there was a, status that was attached to these jobs and they didn't want anybody jockeying for position or trying to buy their way or people getting like favors to do different things so they cast lots to burn incense was the highest honor that you could have you would go into the holy place not just in the courts of the temple you would go into the holy place and it was only permitted for a man to do it once in his lifetime if you ever were were lucky enough to go into the temple and burn incense you could never do it again so if you did it your first year Tough luck, pal. You're not going to do it again. Zechariah is old. He's been waiting his whole life. And finally, he gets a chance to do this. I found a great description of what the, the priest would do, what this process looked like. And I'm going to read it to you. This is from a guy named Alfred Edersheim. He said, First, the man who was chosen had to pick two of his special friends or relatives to assist in his sacred service. So Zechariah is chosen, and he picks two others to go with him. Their duties were comparatively simple. One reverently removed what had been left on the altar from the previous evening service, and then worshiping retired backwards. So three go in, first one clears off the golden altar, and then goes out. The second assistant now advanced, having spread to the utmost verge of the golden altar the live coals taken from the burnt offering, worshiped and retired. So he would take the coals from the burnt offering, take those into the holy place, and spread the new coals out on the golden altar, and then he would back out. And the, pr the priest who had been chosen would wait until a special signal was indicated that the moment had come to spread the incense on the altar as near as possible to the Holy of Holies until he saw the incense kindling. Then he also would have bowed down in worship and reverently withdrawn. So what he had to do was, after it's been cleaned, after the coals have been put on it, he would take the, the spices, the incense they had made, and he would spread that on the coals until it ignited and the scent began to go up. And then he would prostrate himself before the Lord and then stand up and back out. And it says all the people were gathered outside to pray. The incense represented the prayers of the people. It was supposed to represent the prayers going up before the Lord. And all these people are here praying. What do you think they were praying for? This is important because of what's about to happen. Doubtless they were praying, as they had prayed for so long, for a deliverer. 
Seems like Israel had been doing this from the very beginning. Not from Egypt, not from Assyria, not from Babylon. This time they're praying for deliverance from Rome. And this is sort of strange because the Old Testament leaves us off in the book of Malachi where they're under the, the uh, dominion of Persia. Persia is the empire that is ruling in the world. Many of the Jews have been scattered throughout the world and, and they're trying to maintain their identity as a people. They're trying to maintain the law that God had given to them in the Persian land. And Malachi warns them to make sure that they do that. And then it breaks off. And the next thing we know, Rome is in power. So what's going on? I'll give you a little, little uh, background of what happened here. In 330 BC, Alexander the Great came in and defeated the Persians. And he established his enormous empire, right? From Europe to India, the whole world was under the sway of Alexander the Great. So the rule of Israel passed to the Greeks. Now, Greek culture, as you know, Roman culture was basically the same as Greek culture with different names. Greek culture was very, very contagious, you could say. And this became a problem for the Jews because the Greek culture began to permeate Jerusalem in the land of Judah. And they were concerned about this because they were losing what God had given them as their distinction, as, their, as the people of God. Now, when Alexander died, his empire was divided into four pieces. And from 320 to 198 BC, Judah was ruled from Egypt by uh, a Greek dynasty called the Ptolemies. And then in 198, the Seleucid Empire from Syria, which is another Greek dynasty, won them over. There was a Seleucid king in 175 BC named Antiochus IV. He's also known as Antiochus Epiphanes. So they've been tossed around from king to king, from Persia to Alexander to the Ptolemies to the Seleucids. And they're sick of it. <laughs> they're ready to be done. So in 168, they stage a rebellion which fails. Antiochus Epiphanes comes to Jerusalem, destroys the city, tears down the walls, and pillages the temple. It's very similar to what happened under Nebuchadnezzar in 586 with, under Babylon. He outlawed all the feasts, he outlawed the scriptures, and he outlawed circumcision. Anything that identified you as a Jew was outlawed under pain of death. And the temple of God was given over to the worship of Zeus. And for three years, pigs were slaughtered in honor of Zeus in, uh, in the holy place. This is what Daniel uh, prophesied as the abomination of desolation, which will have a further fulfillment later. But can you imagine? The people of, of Israel had been worried that they were going to get too assimilated to Greek culture. And now they're not even allowed to be Jews anymore. And a false god is being worshipped in the temple. Well, this next part, I'm going to read from the book of Maccabees. Maccabees is not scripture, but it is good history. And it lets us know what was going on in between the testaments here. So with that as, this, as the stage, Antiochus is king, and they're worshiping Zeus, they're sacrificing pigs in the temple, and it tells us from uh, the book of First Maccabees, the king's officials who were forcing the people to turn from God came to the town of Modain to force the people there to offer pagan sacrifices. Many of the Israelites came to meet them, including Mattathias and his sons. The king's officials said to Mattathias, You are a respected leader in this town. You have the support of your sons and relatives. Why not be the first one to do what the king has commanded? All the Gentiles, the people of Judea, and all the people left in Jerusalem have already done so. If you do, you and your sons will be honored with the title of friends of the kings, and you will be rewarded with silver and gold and many gifts. They're bribing this guy who was part of the priesthood to lead the way in telling the people that it's okay to offer pagan sacrifices. 
Well, Mattathias answered in a loud voice, I don't care if every Gentile in this empire has obeyed the king and yielded to the command to abandon the religion of his ancestors. My children, my relatives, and I will continue to keep the covenant that God made with our ancestors. With God's help, we will never abandon his law or disobey his commands. We will not obey the king's decree, and we will not change our way of worship in the least. But just as he finished speaking, one of the men from Modane decided to obey the king's decree and stepped out in front of everyone to offer a pagan sacrifice on the altar that stood there. When Mattathias saw him, he became angry enough to do what had to be done. Shaking with rage, he ran forward and killed the man right there on the altar. He also killed the royal official who was forcing his people to sacrifice, and he tore down the altar. In this was Mattathias showed his deep devotion for the law, just as Phineas had done when he killed Zimri, son of Salu. You might remember the story of Phineas. Then Mattathias went through the town shouting, Everyone who is faithful to God's covenant and obeys his law, follow me. With this, he and his sons fled to the mountains, leaving behind all they owned. I wanted to read that because that's just such an amazing story. That This was the moment where the rebellion began. And this is what is known in history as the Maccabean War. Why is it called that? Because Mattathias had four sons, one of whom was named Judas, and he was nicknamed Judas Maccabeus, which means Judas the Hammer. There's a nickname you could get used to, huh? He was, he was such a great warrior, they called him the Hammer. So they, they, they staged this guerrilla war against Greece, and in 164 BC, they retook Jerusalem, they regained the temple. If you're familiar with the story of Hanukkah, this is when this took place, where the Lord sustained the oil for longer than it should have when they could make the new oil. But here's the thing, this is a great moment in Israel's history. But in order to secure their independence, the Maccabees made a fateful treaty with Rome. They said, will you come and help us overthrow these Greek rulers? And Rome said, yes, that would come back to haunt them later. For 75 years, the Jews ruled themselves under, under the Maccabees. So this was called the Hasmonean dynasty, if you ever heard of that. And these were not good years for Israel. The, the Hasmoneans, who were descended from the Maccabees, began to be corrupt and began to reintroduce all the Greek culture that they had tried to get rid of. And there was a group of people that were so upset and so fed up with that that they began to rebel against the Hasmoneans. Those people were called Pharisees. In one year, the, the Hasmoneans crucified 800 Pharisees in order to keep them from disturbing the peace. Then in 63 BC, there was a war of succession between two Hasmonean kings. And Pompey the Great, a general of Rome, came down, who was technically an ally of Israel, comes down and begins to talk to these 10 cities that Jerusalem had overthrown, like Damascus and a couple others. And he says, listen, if you come under the Roman Empire, you won't have to serve the Jews anymore. And those 10 cities left, which is what's called the Decapolis, the 10 cities. We'll learn about that later. And they slowly began to chip away at the, the, the land of Israel while this war was going on until eventually they conquered Jerusalem. Pompey the Great slaughtered the priests in the temple as they ministered, and 12,000 Jews who resisted were killed. And that, there was a man who had schemed with Pompey. So there was a man in the court of the Jews who had been scheming behind the scenes to get Rome to come in and overthrow. And this man was an Edomian, which comes from the word Edom, which means he was a descendant of Esau. So this descendant of Esau, who served in the court, schemed with Rome, and he was made governor over Judea. His name was Antipater. And upon his death, 
his son Herod was declared the king of the Jews. So it was in these days under Herod, whose father had sold the people of Israel out to Rome. He is king. They're occupied by Rome. The heroics of the Maccabees are long gone. Their independence had failed. Zechariah enters the temple to offer incense. All of this is going on. At the, at the, the pinnacle of the temple, there was a Roman fortress that overlooked the whole temple complex. And they had to look at that every time they came in. This is the prayer that these people were offering. Lord, how long until you send our deliverer? Well, in verse 11, there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Remember, the priest had to prostrate himself. Maybe, I like to think that when he stood up and looked up from the ground, the angel was just standing right there. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said, angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, Yohanan in Greek. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled for with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Zechariah sees an angel standing in the holy place, the right side of the altar. And he freaked out a little bit. <laughs> that's, that's always the case. Anytime in scripture somebody encounters an angel or the presence of God, the first reaction is fear. But the second thing that always happens is the angel told him, do not be afraid. The Lord always does that. Whenever people are afraid in the presence of God, the Lord tells them, do not be afraid. That's, by the way, how you can tell if the, something that you're sensing or feeling is from God or not. If it's making you afraid, it's not from the Lord. Because the first words out of the Lord's mouth whenever somebody is in his presence are, do not be afraid. He had good news. He had good news for Zechariah. The angel says, your prayer has been heard. What was this prayer? Now he tells him you're going to have a son, but we're also going to see Zechariah had long given up on having a son. He's praying for this deliverer. He's praying for somebody to come in and liberate Israel and to restore the days that they had hoped for. But the angel announces that this is going to happen by means of a son that will be born to him. This story feels real familiar if you know your Bible. You know, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Hannah, Samson's mother, all these women uh, received a vision from an angel who came and told them, you're going to have a son, even though you either cannot have children or you're too old to have children. So it's kind of like every time this happens, somebody cool comes out of that story, right? You had Isaac first, then you had Jacob and Esau, right? Then you had Samuel, you had Samson. So if you know your Bible, you should be getting excited at this point. Oh, somebody's coming. And this boy to be named John will be great before the Lord. He says, this is going to be the one to draw the people of Israel back to their God, to restore them to repentance. He gives them this, this command. He can't have intoxicating drink because instead he's going to be full of the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Ephesians 5.18 also, very interestingly, draws a contrast between being drunk and being filled with the Spirit. The point is, this kid, Zechariah, will never be controlled by anything other than the Holy Spirit. His will will be subservient to the Lord, not to anything else. 
even from his mother's womb. He would be filled with the Holy Spirit before he was even born. What kind of man is this going to be? Like, well, this is, this is even better than Samuel. This is even better. Who is this? Well, look at verse 17. He says, he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. This is key. This is key. Because the last thing that God had said to Israel, the last verses of the last book of the Old Testament that had been written 400 years before, Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, said this. God says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So does that sound familiar? The last thing God said was, I'm going to send you Elijah and he's going to turn the hearts of the people back. 400 years of silence from the Lord, no scripture, no prophecy, until this angel shows up and says, Zechariah, you're going to have a son who's going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the people back to the Lord. This is exactly what the people wanted. They're probably thinking, we need another Mattathias. We need another Judas Maccabeus, another hammer, right, to come and all oh, right, the spirit and power of Elijah. Elijah wasn't known for his gentleness or subtlety. <laughs> Elijah the Tishbite was a fiery preacher, a passionate man. He slaughtered 400 prophets of Baal down by the river. That's the kind of people they were wanting. So this is exactly what they wanted. But look here. In verse 17 again, he says, He will go before him. Who's him? I love this because it doesn't come out and say it. Unless maybe to be referring back to verse 16, to the Lord their God. Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 told us this as well. The Lord said, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So it's very important to know the book of Malachi when we're talking about John the Baptist because he was fulfilling these promises. John, the son of Zechariah, was to be the forerunner of the Lord himself, who was coming back to his temple to set all things right. This is what was known as the Messiah. The Jews had been longing for a deliverer, and while John was not the Messiah, the messianic plan was set in motion. Surely, Zechariah would have been overjoyed at this, right? Well, not so much. Let's read verse 18. Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? Which is a really kind way of saying, Yeah, you better prove this, because I don't think so. For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Zechariah was wise enough. No, you never call your wife an old woman. <laughs> I'm an old man, and she is seasoned, he says, right? And the angel answered him, Oh, you're an old man? Well, I am Gabriel. <laughs> I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me, and the days when he looked on me, to take away my reproach among people. Zechariah challenges this angel. <laughs> He's like, 
Uh, I don't think so. I'm old. She's old. This doesn't happen. How are we supposed to have a child? And I love this because not only is he forgetting that that's exactly what God did for Abraham, right? Abraham and Sarah were old and advanced in years and he gave them a child. And he's kind of like, listen, I'm an old man. And Gabriel almost like gets ticked off at him here. He's like, yeah, you might be an old man. That's great. Listen, I stand in the presence of God every day. The only reason I left was to bring you this good news. That bringing the good news is the word evangelize, by the way, in Greek. It's a little foreshadowing of what would come later. He says, God sends me out of his presence to come and bring you good news. And you don't even believe me, pal. That's not how you question God. God is not afraid of your questions, right? Read the book of Habakkuk. The, the prophet is offering some very tough questions to the Lord. But the thing is, people who demand answers because they have a lack of faith, you're not going to get an answer from God. God's not obligated to answer you because, you know, you're, you're lacking faith. And so you're just going to come and say, yeah, prove it. Okay, God, whatever. You're not going to get answers from God. This is what would happen in, in the life of Jesus. We'll see this over and over. Mark chapter 8, verse 11 through 12. The Pharisees came and began to argue with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit. If you have kids, you know what it's like to sigh deeply in your spirit, right? <sighs> right? Jesus said, why does this generation seek a sign? The idea is like, this generation, of all generations, I'm healing people every week, every day, walking on water, and you're asking me for a sign? No. I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Even though Jesus was willing to give signs to people who were sincere and wanted to grow in faith, people who showed up with a chip on their shoulder, no, you don't get anything from the Lord. Zechariah was given a sign, all right, but it was hardly the sign that he wanted. He was struck dumb. And the word for mute in verse uh, 23, or maybe 24, uh, he's, is kophros in Greek. It also can mean deaf. So it's entirely possible that not only was he unable to speak, he was unable to hear anything either. That might explain why later on they're making signs to him to find out what he wants to name his child. And the angel departs, says, this is going to happen, but I'm not going to let you to get out there and spread your skepticism to people. They're going to know that something happened, but they're not going to know what. I'm not going to give you the chance to go out there and try and hedge. Like, oh, yeah, God said it, but maybe, I don't know, we'll see. He's like, no, you're just, you're just going to be silent. You're muted, Zechariah. <laughs> well, the priests were expected to be brisk in their duties, right? Like, don't stay in there a long time. You get in, you get out, you do what you got to do. And when he comes out, he's supposed to give the priestly benediction from the book of Numbers chapter 6, right? The Lord bless you and the Lord keep you. He comes out and he's not saying anything. And he's kind of like waving his arms and trying to, you know, I can't speak. And they, they knew something was up. They knew he must have seen a vision in the temple, but of course they couldn't know what it is. And maybe he wouldn't have wanted to share the story because he doesn't look too well in that story. But he does have to go home. And you can only imagine what that looked like. Elizabeth would have been worried. I wonder what her reaction to the tale would have been because obviously maybe he wrote it down for her. Maybe he had to, I don't know, draw pictures and hieroglyphics. I don't know. But uh, it doesn't give us many details there. But for a long time, he wasn't saying much, and he might not have been able to hear anything either. But the Lord was true to his word, despite all that. Elizabeth conceived, and she kept herself hidden. We're not really sure why. Uh, maybe she just was concerned that there was going to be talk, and she didn't want that. But when she, she says, this is what the Lord has done for me. She's like, listen, this was a natural childbirth. This wasn't, uh, this wasn't a virgin birth. But she says, but don't anybody think that, oh, look, you finally got lucky. Finally. Oh, good. You've been trying a long time. He says, she says, no, no. The Lord has done this for us. Now, normally in scripture, 
You'd read this and you'd think, wow, this is the beginning of a great story. You got John, the miracle child. He's going to be like Samson. He's going to be like Samuel. But what the story does in verse 26, it's actually going to switch focus here, which is really interesting. And I love the way that, the, that Luke writes this because the story is going to be almost just like the first one, except bigger and better. It's an amplification. It's, it's a, oh, what's a good word? I don't know. Let's just read it. It's every part of the story just gets a little bit bigger and better. We read verse 26 through 29. In the sixth month, that would be the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. <laughs> so Elizabeth has been pregnant for six months and our attention is directed to Gabriel's next destination, Nazareth in Galilee. Galilee was the northernmost part of Judea and uh, it was not a great place to be from. Dwight Pentecost uh, gives us a good description of this. I'm going to read it. it says, the Galileans were looked down on by the Jews in Jerusalem as an inferior people. The Jews had a saying that expressed their feeling. If a man would be rich, let him go to Galilee. If he would be wise, let him go to Jerusalem. Because it was possible for one to become wealthy by leaving Jerusalem and going to Galilee. So those who settled there were considered materialistic and to have forfeited spiritual privileges for material gain. And Nazareth had become a military camp town with which all manner of sin and corruption were associated. Nathaniel would say in John 1:46, "Can anything good come out of Nazareth?" So from the splendor of the temple, the dignity of the priesthood, we're brought to the home of a poor young lady in a disreputable place. She would have been young, perhaps even as young as 13 years old. It would not have been uncommon for her to be that young. Likely not any, not any older than 15 or 16, especially in, in the poor communities they tended to get married earlier. She would have been poor. We know this because the offering that they'll bring to the temple in the next chapter is the offering that was set aside for the poor. And she would have been unremarkable. Nobody would have known anything about her, at least by the standards of men. But she had gotten God's attention. And her name was Mary. Actually, her name would have been Miriam. She would have had the name of uh, Moses' sister. And through the name being anglicized, we call her Mary, and that's okay. But we with her, we can kind of wonder at this. Like, who from Nazareth could be called favored of God, right? What is so special about anything from this place that God would come here? We just left the temple. That's where you meet with God, not Galilee. She's like, why would he call me that? Why would he say that to me? Well, verse 30, the angel said to her, do not be afraid. There it is again. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So, like Zechariah, she has a visit from the angel. Like Zechariah, she is afraid, but she's told not to be. Like Zechariah, she too is told she will have a child, and she's given the name of this little boy, Jesus, which in their time would have been Yeshua or Joshua, which means salvation of the Lord. This is the longed for Messiah. 
Before we learned of the coming of the forerunner, now we're seeing the mother of the promised one himself, who would be greater even than John. Jesus later on would say that John was the greatest man who ever lived, but Jesus is greater. And who is this child to be? He says that he will sit on the throne of David, reign over the house of Jacob, and have an everlasting kingdom. A throne, a house, and a kingdom. This is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. If you read in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David says to the Lord, I want to build you a house. I want to build you a temple. And the Lord says, no, David, I'm going to build you a house. Your kingdom is going to endure forever. It will never fail. You will always have a son to sit on the throne. In Psalm 89, uh, there's a poetic description of this, verses 34 through 37, and it's coming from the mouth of the Lord. He says, I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. The Davidic eternal covenant, the the son of David will rule forever. The Hasmonean dynasty, the descendants of the Maccabees, they were not descended from David. And they only ruled for 75 years in very turbulent, corrupt times. I would imagine that that short-lived rule, which was then replaced by the, the domination of Rome, would have caused the people to sing songs like Psalm 89 in desperation. Like, Lord, we tried to rule ourselves, and do it our way, but we need the son of David. Lord, send the, the son of David. Send that Messiah, Lord. And now the angel is promising young Mary, you're going to be his mama. You will give birth to a king, and not just a king, the king of kings. He will be called the son of the most high. Which is a little nod, of course, to the virgin birth as well. Verse 34, And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. We see Mary's reaction. She's modest and sincere, not like Zechariah. Zechariah was a grumpy old man who wasn't even impressed by an angel. Mary hears it and she's, okay, but how am I going to have a child? I'm, I've never been with a man before. And this is, this is the kind of asking questions of God that gets answers. The humble desire to understand, right? Not the idea that I'm going to go toe-to-toe with the Lord and tell him that he's wrong. And, and she's not doubting. She's concerned about the process. And the thing is, she's concerned because of her own virtue. And it's a commendable virtue. She had saved herself for her husband. And she says, I, I've never been with anybody. I'm not going to have a baby. I don't, I don't know what, what's going to happen, but I, I believe you. And now, you would, if you had read through the Bible and you read the stories of Hannah and Samson, you would expect him to come in and start talking about Joseph here, Right? How am I going to have a baby? He's like, well, no, no, I mean, I mean, after you're married, you'll have a baby. But that's not what the angel says. As the second announcement continues to diminish the first one, she's told that you are going to conceive a child without sexual intercourse. This is something that has never been seen before and will never be seen again. This is the greatest miracle of all, you could say, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. 
It's the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, which says, The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means, of course, God is with us. Now, if you read Isaiah chapter 7, the first time that passage was fulfilled, it was a natural birth. It says that the prophetess gave birth to a son. Uh, the words for virgin in Hebrew, it's Alma. In Greek, it's Parthenos. Um, it can it can refer to a virgin, but it doesn't necessarily have to, right? So it's, it's a broader term. It's kind of like our term maiden. When we talk about a maiden, technically it refers to a virgin, but we can use the word a little broader than that. It's the same thing. But the first time the Lord had used the, the broader definition, but there was a greater fulfillment in Mary and the person of Jesus, which was the Lord is like, no, I really meant a virgin. This is a miraculous birth. Do you see how the, how the stories are, are moving and getting better and better? And we're not going to talk too much about the virgin birth today. I want to hit it more when we get to chapter uh, next week, when we get into the actual birth of Jesus, chapter two, maybe that'll be two weeks from now, but uh, to really understand the implications of that. But all I want us to see now, the stories. Are, are similar to each other, but one of them is greater than the other. You've got the forerunner to the Messiah. You've got a prophet and a king, a miraculous birth and a virgin birth. What is this doing? It's supposed to point to Jesus as the point of this story, to build your anticipation for what's about to happen. We're excited about John, but all of a sudden it repeats and it tells another story. Oh, who's this? Somebody even greater than John. And Gabriel gives Mary a sign as well, and he says, Look what's happened to your, your kinswoman, Elizabeth. Apparently she was still ignorant about that. Apparently she hadn't heard it yet. He says, go visit Elizabeth. It'll build your faith. And that's exactly what she's going to do. We'll see that next week. But the angel's exaltation in verse 37, nothing will be impossible with God. That should be our reaction all the time. Nothing is impossible with God. I love it in, in Greek. It's tough to render exactly in English, but it's like every word of the Lord will never be impossible. Every rhema, every word that comes out of the mouth of God will come to pass. Genesis 18, 14 says, is there anything too hard for the Lord? And in fact, that verse was given to Sarah when she doubted that she would have a miraculous birth. No matter what we see with our eyes, the word of the Lord will not be denied. God made promises to Mary. He made promises to Zechariah. He had made promises to Israel, promises to the whole world. And every one of them has been fulfilled or will be fulfilled in its time. Because there's nothing impossible for the Lord. So Mary says in verse 38, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Mary's humble submission. This is an example for all of us. She calls herself the, the servant, the handmaiden of the Lord. This is the Greek word doule, which is the feminine form of the word doulos, which means slave. She says, I'm, I'm just the Lord's slave girl. I have no rights. I have no authority. I'm just, you do me whatever you want to do, Lord. She places the situation into the hands of God. And I will say briefly that, you know, while we never want to offer idolatrous worship to Mary. Remember in John chapter 2, verse 5, she said, do whatever Jesus tells you. That's Mary's ministry, is to point to her son Jesus. But nor should we react and, and ignore her. She's deserving of our honor and our love. She is, I mean, the greatest of women. She's an example. She was a godly woman. What kind of girl must she have been at like age 15, no less, to attract the Lord's attention? That tells us something, by the way, about how the Lord looks at young people. Apparently at age 13, 14, 15, the Lord was pleased enough with her to give her his favor. So don't write off the younger generation. 
Because the Lord's like, if you're old enough to understand, you're old enough to, for me to use you. But before we leave these two stories, the, the, the application that I want to draw from this, the greater the promises, the greater the miracle, the more obscure and unlikely the setting became. Do you see that? Zechariah was an unremarkable priest, probably a tradesman. I mean, like when he wasn't serving at the temple, he had to go home and have a job. And he and his wife were childless despite their old age. But God chose them. Galilee was undesirable. Nazareth was a despised city. Mary she was young. She was poor. She was nobody. Yet these were noticed by God. Zechariah and Elizabeth, what it said, were walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Mary had found favor with God. I mean, here's what's going on. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, they're squabbling. You've got the zealots that are raging and trying to overthrow the government. Rome is pressing down with an iron fist. And that's where all the action is. And that's where you think you should be looking, right? But it's these three, and you could throw Joseph into the mix as well here, who are laboring in quiet obscurity, serving the Lord with nobody knowing who they were. And they were the ones that God honored and chose to bring these people into the world. Alexander McLaren says this, in times of religious declension, declension meaning like a decline, in times of religious declension, the few who still are true are mostly in obscure corners and live quiet lives like springs of fresh water rising in the midst of a salt ocean. I'm afraid that we still haven't learned that lesson. That David was the eighth son singing hymns to the Lord out in the field with a bunch of sheep that nobody ever heard but the Lord. He had no prospect of advancement or promotion. He just sat there serving God faithfully. And that's the one that God chose. First Samuel 16, 7, right? The Lord said, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And the Lord chose to elevate David because of his quiet faithfulness. And you know what? This is not a, a track that says, okay, so if I'm quietly faithful, that's my fast track to getting exalted? No, 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 no. <laughs> Jeremiah 45, uh, Jeremiah's scribe was a man named Baruch. He was the one that actually wrote down all the prophecies. And uh, Jeremiah gets a word from the Lord for Baruch this time. And he says, do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. Baruch was thinking, well, I'm going to quietly be faithful and serve the Lord. And then eventually when Jeremiah dies, it'll be my turn. And Jeremiah is telling him, Baruch, you need to be content with being unknown and obscure and just being faithful to the Lord. This is a temptation where we want to be known. We want to be remembered. We want to be seen. We want to be right where the action is. Even in the church, there's a temptation that, you know, we've got to get out and we've got to get in the fray and we've got to handle everything and we've got to change the world. And some of that is good, but you know what? That's not where the battle is going to be won. The Lord looks upon people who are quietly serving and are unknown. That's who the Lord blesses. Psalm 37, I'm a, I, I could read the whole psalm, but it's really long, so I'll just read the first five verses. But it says, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He's like, look, they're going to do what they're going to do. Wickedness is always going to be there. You 
just quietly, faithfully serve the Lord, like Mary did. We would never have known her name, but she was faithful to the Lord. We would never have known Zechariah or Elizabeth, but they were quietly faithful to the Lord. The Jews were looking for a valiant hero. They were looking for another Judas the Hammer to come in and overthrow Rome, right? They kept, you're going to see, they're going to keep trying to make Jesus be that guy. They're even going to try and make John to be that guy. But when God sent his Messiah, he didn't send him to the courts of the king. He didn't send him to the halls of power. He sent him to an obscure corner where he would be overlooked his entire life. That should tell us something. Because the angel Gabriel predicted that John the Baptist would be great before the Lord. Great before the Lord. Here's the question. Is that enough for you? Is it enough for you to know that you're great in the eyes of the Lord, even if the world never notices you? Is it enough that God sees, or do you have a craving in your heart to be known by people? I need to be known and recognized and seen for who I am and have my gifts broadcasted for the world to see. It's only fair, God. I'm serving you better than anyone else. It should be good enough for us to be great in the eyes of the Lord. Because let me tell you, when we stand before the Lord, when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ and the rewards are given out, I don't think it's going to have much to do with how we rank things and how we rank people, you know? Who was faithful to pray? Who was faithful to love people? Who was faithful to serve? Faithful to commit themselves to the Lord and study the word and, and try their best to walk in the commandments of God, but to hand the rest over to Jesus in faith, to share the gospel even though they were afraid. Those people are the ones that the Lord will honor. God honors those who are faithful in daily, quiet, unsung worship and obedience. And what's great? We can't make ourselves great. There's a lot of luck involved with that, you know? You got to know the right people. You got to be born in the right place at the right time. You got to catch the wave of public opinion. So we can't make ourselves great, but you know what we can do? We can make ourselves faithful. And that's enough for the Lord. And it should be enough for us. How can I apply this to all of us? This, this is the second week we're here together as a church. It's small. There's not a lot going on, right? The pastor's also leading worship and everybody's pulling double duty and doing a couple different things. This is not like, well, when we finally get going and it all comes together, that's when... No, this right here is beautiful in the eyes of the Lord because we are fellowshipping with, love, with each other in love. We're singing praise to the Lord. We're studying the word of God. That's enough. And if this is not enough in our eyes, it will never be enough, no matter how big, no matter how influential or whatever. We're not striving to be great. We're striving to be obedient and faithful. And I'm going to close actually with another quote from Alexander McLaren about this. He says, it is a poor ambition to seek to be called great. It is a noble desire to be great in the sight of the Lord. And if we will keep ourselves close to Jesus Christ, that will be attained. It will matter very little what men think of us. If at last we have praise from the lips of him who poured such praise on his servant, John, we may, if we will, you want to be great in the sight of the Lord? You may, if you will. And then it will not hurt us, though our names on earth be dark and our memories perish from among men. If the Lord sees us, that's enough.